1: what got you there with Shondalini? Uh What got you there with got you, got you? If you want to change the world, make your bed. Make your bed. And and the whole idea was start with the little things. The things you can control, the things you can do something about. And then when you do that little thing, then you can do another thing, another, another. You make and keep commitments to yourself. That's in your circle of influence. And we can't do anything about what's happening to us at large. We can do a little bit about it in our in our environment, in, you know, in our world, in our, in our circle of influence, but we've got to keep our focus in that inner circle of influence. And as we do that, it will expand and grow. What got you there
0: with Stephen Covey is a New York Times and number one Wall Street Journal bestselling author of The Speed of Trust, The One Thing That Changes Everything. He is the former CEO of the Covey Leadership Center, which under his stewardship became the largest leadership development company in the world. Stephen personally led the strategy that propelled his father's book, Dr. Stephen R. Covey's The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, to become one of the two most influential business books of the 20th century, according to CEO Magazine. Making change transpire. That's the mission behind the most amazing tasting protein bar brand taking the nutrition industry by storm. That brand... They're MCT Co., and they make the most delicious, keto-friendly, all-natural collagen protein bars. If you're obsessed with the quality of food going into your body like I am, then head out and pick up these amazing bars jammed with 10 grams of collagen protein. They only have two to three net carbs, no added sugar, and loaded with high-quality MCT oil for the healthy fats from coconuts. Whether you're busy running the kids around from activity to activity, a professional athlete, or just someone looking for a great tasting convenience stack, do yourself a favor. Head to mctco.com and use code WGYT for 20% off your order. Welcome to What Got You There. How are you doing this morning? Hey, Sean, I'm doing great. How are you? Uh, I'm doing well, like like we were just mentioning. I mean, this is a unique time. There's a lot of uncertainty, a lot of questions. So we're recording this on, on March 31st, and you're someone who's been in leadership roles almost their entire life. You've been around difficult scenarios, and I would love to just get your perspective and your pulse on what you're doing right now during these times of uncertainty, just to have some normalcy, just to make sure you're handling this situation the correct way so do you have any perspectives uh or, or ways and approaches you're going about today
1: um yeah well it's changing by the day isn't it and and uh um because uh there is so much uncertainty right now and so I'm trying to um kind of be uh an optimistic realist <laughs> and and uh, you know to kind of con- the reality of of what's happening to us in our society and and how it's impacting all of us and yet at the same time having the hope and the optimism that we can and will get through this and I'm reminded a little bit Sean of of, uh, um, in Jim Collins book good to great where he talked about the Stockdale paradox he called it and the idea that um, it was Admiral James Stockdale who was a prisoner of war in Vietnam and, and to survive many years as a prisoner of war and then he observed at the end that he found kind of the the you know the prisoners of war that were pessimists didn't do as well because they didn't have hope those that were you know the real optimists at some point um, lost hope when when their optimism wasn't realized and he said the people that did the best were kind of the realists that that knew that we were not going kind to of get out immediately, but that we would ultimately get out. And that's kind of how I feel as we're going through this is that it's hard to know how long this is going to last and the impact of it. But I am confident we will triumph over this and we'll get out and we'll come out and we'll be stronger for having gone through it, even though it's it's painful and it's tragic um, in many situations with uh, some of the, the, the illness and the, and the suf- suffering and the death, but, um, we will get through it. I just don't know when. And, and, um, but to keep that hope and yet at the same time, confront the reality of what's facing us is very, is, is very, uh, significant and, and is as disruptive as anything that we've ever faced in our lifetimes. Yeah, so I mean- that's kind of how I'm viewing it as, uh, as a, as a optimistic realist.
0: No, I I love that framework. And, and so many times we're unwilling, I, I want to say, to embrace the the harsh realities. And this is one of those times you really need to to embrace that and understand that. You bring up Jim Collins' work. Have you been going back recently looking at examples throughout history of people overcoming adversities, or was this just top of mind for you from Jim's work there?
1: Um, That was top of mind. My- I, but at the same time, I have looked at some of this, and I I, I looked at uh, uh, Winston Churchill in World War II, and and when he became prime minister, and and um and how he um, was very much a realist, but how he also spoke the truth and he confronted reality. To use my trust language, you know, he rather than skirting it or burying his head in the sand or not telling the British people what was happening, he would take it head on, and you know he'd say the news from France is not good, and and um, and you know. But he also said, you know, we will prevail and never give up, and this type of thing, and, and we will fight. But he but he addressed it directly, and and as I look back at uh, some of the great learnings and insights in crisis in crises through history. Um, you know your greatest, uh, cre- uh, your greatest asset during a time of crisis for a leader is your credibility, and your greatest currency is the trust that people have in you. So you don't want to do anything to squander that credibility or lose that trust. And so by being able to kind of confront the reality, even the difficult things, the tough things, and that's the Jim Collins. You know we're not going to get out right away but we ultimately will get out. You know, that was the at- Stock Bill paradox. Um, and and then and then to talk straight about it, to be transparent about it. I like how a- Amy Edmondson of Harvard Business School, she said during a crisis, you know, transparency is job one for a leader. You gotta be open and transparent and talk straight. Because if you don't do those things, people start to say one of two things. They're, they're saying, hey, they're not telling us the truth or they don't know what's going on, and they're not capable and competent to handle this. And we want to convey that we're going to always tell the truth, even if we don't like the truth, and then we're going to bring in the right expertise and skills and knowledge to be able to navigate this and get through it, even when we don't know what's going to happen. So, yes, I have actually been looking at some examples of, uh, of leaders, and in, in Churchill comes to mind, kind of one who was able to confront the reality, talk straight, be transparent, and yet still have hope and optimism and perseverance.
0: Yeah, it's it's funny. The past week I've actually gone back and, and reopened Churchill, a few of his books, but the, the leadership skills, the trust he's instilled with people around him really helps get, help those people during those times. I'm wondering though, this is so unique, the people in those leadership positions. We can even let's just start right now with small businesses. And unfortunately, the number of leaders who have to let people go. How do you handle that scenario?
1: Yeah, it's very difficult and, um, no easy way through it. My experience is this, how we do what we do can make a profound difference. Hmm. And, and so we have to confront the reality and the reality might be very difficult. And if I'm a small business and my revenues have dried up or, you know, or dramatically dropped such that the business model doesn't work right now, and if my sources of cash also have dried up, such that I'm running out of cash, I might be forced to do things I would never otherwise do to survive, in order to, you know, to have an ongoing business and to be able to hire great people. And so sometimes, um, we, you know, sometimes I've seen businesses um, collectively uh, take pay cuts. Um, other, in other cases, though, that's not enough, and, and there has to be uh, people let go. But how we do what we do can make a big difference. And so the more we can confront reality, take things head on, and then, and then talk about it. Here's our situation. Here's what's happening to us. Here's why this is a problem. Here's our cash flow situation. And, and so, and then, and then it's also a little bit of a two-way process of trying to listen to your team and to your people and show respect for what you're hearing. And and then we, we treat, and then, you know, but we're talking straight about it. And so if you have to, you know, let people go, how you go about doing it makes a difference. That you do it with respect. You do it with compassion, with openness, with transparency. And and um, also with, uh, with you know, great respect for, for for how you treat their contribution and, and, and also what you're hoping for in the future can happen. It's, it's a new world right now for most leaders. And so there's no easy way out of this. And, and um, so that'd be my main advice is, is uh, we have to do hard things. And the way that we go about doing those things can actually help us build trust. People may not like what they hear from us, but if they can learn that they can trust what they hear from us, it will will keep that currency of trust, you know, as 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 how we're operating as a leader, and that will make a profound difference going forward. So, that would be my main advice: is do it with great um, uh, respect and compassion. But at the same time, we've got to be open and authentic and real and transparent, versus skirting the issues, abetting it, avoiding it, etc.
0: No, this is this is absolutely fantastic. This is unbelievable. Insights and, and feedback. And what I appreciate about you so much is I, I like to only have conversations on this show that are going to stand the test of time. And even though this is a unique circumstance we're in right now, these lessons, they'll stand the test of time. So I, I love hearing about this. Last one about the the current scenario we're in. But what about the people not in in those leadership roles, in those leadership positions? How do they handle this uncertainty? Are there any mindsets, any frameworks that that they can just be living out right now to help handle this?
1: Yes, I um, again, a very difficult situation for for all of us and, and for people in that situation that you're describing that aren't in the leadership role or position and and feel very much, you know, buffeted by all these forces hitting them and and so my main advice would be um what i learned from my father in in uh, his in his work on the seven habits of highly effective people and that is that um that there's the circle of our concern the things that we're concerned about and right now it's never been bigger or greater because of what's happening to us with this uh crises and, and um, all the impact that that has on us and potentially the loss of jobs the potentially the loss of, of uh, important uh, uh, things that we have grown accustomed to or used to contributions we're trying to make. So the things that are happening to us is our circle of concern. Inside of that circle of concern is a smaller circle of influence. And those are the things that we can do something about. I can't do anything about the you know global situation i can do a lot about my willingness to practice social distancing and my willingness to help others do the same and so and i can't do a whole lot about necessarily whether my company is going to have layoffs but i can do a whole lot about what i'm going to try to do to build my capabilities and my knowledge and my skills during these difficult times and I might have some downtime in which I'm gonna try to to, uh, develop myself and to enhance myself and to grow and develop. The more I focus on my circle of influence, the larger my circle of influence becomes. The more I focus on the circle of concern, all these terrible things that are happening to us, and right now it's hard not to, but the more I focus on that, the smaller my circle of influence becomes and I feel less empowered. I feel much more empowered when I focus on that circle of influence. So I love how um, Admiral William McRaven, former commander of Special Ops, Special Operations, how he 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 wrote the book. He gave a, a talk, and then he it went viral, and he wrote a book on this. And, and it was a commencement speech, the university commencement speech, the University of Texas. And he said this: He said, "If you want to change the world, make your bed. Make your bed. And and the whole idea was start with the little things." the things you can control the things you can do something about and then when you do that little thing then you can do another thing and then another and another you make and keep commitments to yourself that's in your circle of influence and we can't do anything about what's happening to us at large we can do a little bit about it in our in our environment in, you know in our world in our in our circle of influence but we got to keep our focus in that inner circle of influence and as we do that it will expand and grow and then the tendency of most of us is that we focus on our circle of concern, we become more reactive, whereas when we focus on our circle of influence, we become proactive, and then it it expands. So that'd be my main advice, and that sounds easy, but it's very hard to do. We all know that, and that'd be, that's important for all of us, including leaders, focus within our circle of influence and watch that circle expand.
0: Yeah, it's, it's funny, you and you and I seem to be thinking along the same lines right now uh, with regards to Churchill and then in my, uh, my weekly Momentum Monday newsletter, I actually just shared uh, William Craven's speech uh, just because I thought it was so pressing at a time like this. And one of the words that I wanna highlight that you just brought up multiple times was empowerment. And when you're concentrating on that circle of influence, it's unbelievable the amount of empowerment you have. I've just noticed for myself during this time of uncertainty sticking with routines, working on some projects that have been on the back burner for months. Uh, I've really been able to dive into. And when you get those little wins, those little successes, that empowerment just builds in you. So, so thanks for bringing that up. But let's rewind the clock a little bit. Uh, I know we've been talking about current things. I'd love to shed some light on what you were like when you were younger. Are, are there any lessons or, or early things that you did that you think have just stuck with you throughout time?
1: Um. Well, many. And i, I tell you, I, I grew up in a great home. So I was fortunate, blessed to have a, um, a wonderful home life with a, um, a father and a mother um, who taught me so much. And and um, I learned a couple of things that, that stay with me to this day. One is back to this whole idea of the circle of influence, circle, circle of concern. I learned that from my parents and from my dad in particular, who you know, if ever I were to complain or gripe and say, "Hey, you know," I'd go. I'd be in high school and I'd say, "I got the worst teacher. How am I going to learn math when I got this lousy teacher?" And you know, my dad would say, "You know, you're responsible. <laughs> don't blame your teacher. Don't finger point and blame. It's going to be up to you. Why don't you go meet with your teacher, talk with your teacher, or maybe meet with other people? But you are responsible for your learning, not the teacher." And you know, I wanted to gripe, I wanted to complain, and wanted to finger point, but he'd say, "No, you're being reactive. Be proactive. You." your own resourcefulness and initiative to make things happen um there's one example another one is is this is where i this is one of the areas that i ended up going into as my life's work this whole idea of trust and i learned the power of trust and really like you just said of empowerment of being empowered i learned this again from my father when i was just a young boy uh just uh um you know, seven years old, and and uh, my, my father asked me to take care of our lawn, our, our yard, and we had a big lawn, a lot of grass to take care of, and this is back in the day before automatic sprinklers, so you had to manually do it and everything, and he said, son, your job is green and clean, and that was the whole idea. Those are results words of, I want the lawn to be green, and I want it to be clean, and he, and he trained me for two weeks. Again, I'm a young seven-year-old boy trying to learn how to do this. And he trained me how to do it and gave me the responsibility after two weeks of training, he said, okay, son, it's your job. You're green and clean, take over. And, and, um and I remember, you know, the first four or five days I did absolutely nothing on the lawn. And this was in the middle of the summer, Sean, it was, it was a, uh, um, scorching heat, and the lawn was turning yellow by the day, even by the hour, because it was just so hot. And and my father wanted to kind of just take back the responsibility from me, the trust that he gave in to me, and, and say, you know what, you're too young, you know, I'll handle it myself. But he didn't do it. He stayed with it. And we'd built in an agreement that once a week, we'd walk around to see how we're doing. So I'd be accountable to, you know, the job that he was giving me. And so he said son, why don't we walk around and see how we're doing? And again, this is five or six days into it. I've done nothing. And, and, um, I walk around and I said, you know, I started to cry and, you know, and I said, dad, this is just so hard. And and he said, what's hard, son, you haven't done one thing yet. (laughs) But, but Sean, what was hard was me learning to take responsibility and, and to take initiative. And my dad had trusted me and I had not yet kind of risen to it, but he stayed with The trust. He didn't, he didn't abandon it. And I said, Dad, will you help me out? He said, Hey, I agreed I'd be your helper if I've got time. I said, Do you have time, Dad? He says, I've got time. So I went into the house. I brought out two garbage sacks. I gave one to my dad and one to me. And I said to my dad, hey, will you go pick up that garbage over there? Because it makes me want to (laughs) vomit. And and he said, Okay, I'll do it. I'm your helper. And at that moment, I saw that my dad was responding to me. I was as a seven-year-old directing my dad. what to do. And he was doing it. And I, and I said to myself, wow, I'm responsible. This is my job. And I I hardly had to ask for help the rest of the summer. I took responsibility for that job and it became, the yard became green and clean. And as I look back on it, you know, my dad would tell that story um, to talk about stewardship delegation or win-win performance agreements. But I was a seven-year-old boy. I didn't know what those words meant. Here's what I I knew was a seven-year-old. I felt trusted. I felt my father trusted me, and I didn't want to let him down. It inspired me. It brought out the best in me. It helped me develop myself and my skills and my responsibility. And I reciprocated the trust and gave it back to him. And as I reflected upon my life, as I felt like what I had to add, I, I felt this trust. What I'd been given as a gift was the greatest insight and learning of my life because of what being trusted does the people. To be trusted is the most inspiring form of human motivation. It brings out the very best in all of us. That was me as a seven-year-old. Imagine what trust does when we're trusted as 27-year-olds and 37 and 57 and 77-year-olds. It brings out the very best in all of us. And so it was from that learning of being trusted, as well as in my own personal experience of, you know, of when we merged our companies and suddenly we had low trust and we had to build that trust back. I kind of emerged from that and said, trust is such a big idea. And yet we're hardly talking about it. We're assuming that we're taking it for granted. It matters enormously and it is learnable. And I personally experienced it. And so, you know, those are a couple of just little insights and learnings from my youth that have served me and actually gave, you know, they helped me choose the path that I've chosen to feel like I have something to contribute to the world. And it's all about this idea of trust. And I learned it directly firsthand from my father.
0: Yeah, that's pretty a, much a, a profound learning at age seven there. Uh, and you mentioned that, that it is learnable. You can improve on this. So I'm wondering all the experience that you've had around trust, how do we as a leader, how do we help those that we want to instill more trust and how do we give them that leeway? There, there's that fine balance, right? Between giving them enough room to, to fail, make mistakes, and then also showing them, the the ways to improve upon that. How do you balance that out?
1: Yeah, it is a great point you're bringing up because, you know, if you trust too much, too soon, too much risk, you know, you can get burned. It can, it can be a disaster. You can go too far and, you know, and not everyone can be trusted. So it's not a one size fits all, but also if you don't trust enough and you don't empower your people, your team, you won't, um, develop them. You won't inspire them. And 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 you'll be too dependent upon yourself, what you can do. So you're trying to find that balancing act, that, that sweet spot. I call it smart trust. And the whole idea is that you're kind of looking at two different dimensions. The first is your propensity to trust as a leader, your desire, your inclination, your bias to extend trust to people. Ideally, you'd like that to be high, a willingness to trust people because You'll see possibilities that you would never see otherwise if you have a willingness and openness to trust people. But you've got to be smart about it. And that's where the second dimension I call analysis. That flows out of your, your head. See, the propensity to trust flows from your heart. The analysis flows from your head. And now in the analysis, you're looking at, what's the situation? you know, What am I extending trust on? What's the risk involved? And what's the credibility of the person or the people involved? And then I'm using good judgment as to when to trust and how much to trust and trying to set people up to to win in this process so that I can extend more trust to them in the future. So they develop themselves. My father, when he taught me to take care of the yard, green and clean, you know, the risk was pretty low. If I, if I didn't do it, the lawn gets yellow (laughs) and that's not a good thing, but it's not the end of the world, you know, but there might be another situation in business where, You might be trusting someone too much too soon. They're not ready. The risk is too great. If they don't do well with this, maybe it could sink the firm. You know, that wouldn't be smart to extend trust too much too soon to someone when they're not ready, maybe too risky. At the same time, in many situations, people are so much more capable and ready and creative to take on more than they're given. And they don't get the opportunity because we're not trusting people. So we got to find that sweet spot. It's not a one size fits all but i think one of the great things right now that's happening in our current environment with this um you know crisis with, with this pandemic but i also think like you said in any environment you know beyond the pandemic in you know, these are timeless principles the whole idea of of uh, being able to trust people to work from their homes you know remote work right now we're doing it because we have to do it but it's a great extension of trust if you think about it. And, and, um, and so we need clear expectations. We need an agreed-upon process to of accountability to those expectations. And when you do both those things, clear expectations, agreed-upon process for accountability, your ability to extend trust abundantly goes up. And right now, with remote work, it's a great opportunity for leaders to extend trust intentionally and deliberately to your people. And rather than just being forced into this and then still micromanaging them from afar, what if up front you were to focus on an agreement around expectations and accountability and and then be explicit and deliberate about saying, I trust you. I trust you to work from home, not just because we have to, but because I choose to. I trust you. And we have clear expectations. We have accountability. Here's a great opportunity right in front of us. And this could transcend this pandemic and as we get through this we might find that there's all kinds of opportunities where we can extend more trust to people in a variety of situations and remote work is just one there might be many others too and we kind of grow in this process of learning how to be smart in the extension of trust and what it does to people and how it inspires them and brings the very best out of them so that's probably you know it's a long way of Of uh, describing this but in short it's the idea of it's a smart trust rather than a blind trust so we're trying to use our best judgment good judgment and then we're always trying to extend trust with kind of an agreement in place around expectations and accountability if you do that well then it's the agreement that governs and it's not you having to hover over and micromanage and quote snoop revise you know their every move and activity instead they are being accountable to what you agreed to. They report back to you and it feels different to people. And that's the opportunity that we have right now um, with, with what's going on in the world. But also that will transcend us when we emerge out of this crisis. This is a great way of leading by extending trust to your people.
0: Oh, that's fantastic. And and please feel free to take the long-winded approach here. I, I'm taking so many notes because there's so many amazing nuggets you're bringing up. So So please continue with that. Uh, a question, though, I have around trust is, say say we're a young business, and obviously you know the importance of, of speed, and speed comes with trust. How do we balance between hiring people we know very well that we can trust explicitly over competence? So say we're, we're choosing between two people. One, we don't know at all. They're highly competent. They're someone we know and trust with everything that we have, but they might not be as competent. Do you have any advice on how to balance that and and decide there?
1: Yeah. So um, again, you're, you're, you're very real, Sean, with uh, the dilemmas you bring up, because this is, this is very real. You might feel like, you know, someone, you trust them, you've been with them. You're not questioning their agenda, their, their motive. And yet maybe you're not quite sure about their skills or capabilities, their competence. And, and so this is an ongoing process of, of learning to hire for both character and competence both sometimes people hire for competence but they end up firing for character mm. and you know because they let, they get let down and that's not sufficient but the other way is not sufficient either if it's if someone has good character but they're lacking the competence That might not be sufficient but here's the thing the competence is tied to the job to be done none of us are competent at everything so we have to just say look in a changing world where everything's evolving can this person learn are they a good learner and are they capable of learning fast and and changing and adapting because everything's changing and so rather than just looking at they have all this experience and you know because that might be some of them might have 20 years of experience, but it might really be one year of experience that they've repeated 20 times. Mm-hmm. And and um, you know, but, you know, the real question in my mind is: Are they learning? Are they growing? Are they improving? Are they getting better? Can they learn? Are they adaptive and responsive? And that's the kind of thing that we need in a changing environment, in a disruptive world, and even beyond the pandemic. It's a world of change and disruption everywhere. So to be agile, to be adaptive, to be responsive. And when you can trust someone that they get along well with others, and if they have enough competence that they are a good learner, and and they can apply and, 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 and learn and recreate and reinvent, then it may be that you're saying, we can learn the skills and the competencies. We can develop that, as long as that's in them, the basic capability. So the competence does matter. I don't want to downplay that, because that's part of how you keep the trust. If, Someone could be honest and really caring and not able to deliver. And in that case, I might trust them to watch my home because they're honest and caring, but I might not trust them on the key project, the key client, the key deliverable if they can't perform. So I've got to have the competence to, as well as the character. You can learn to hire for both character and competence. All I'm saying is on the competence, look more to their track record of results in the past, and and um, and then also to their their ability to learn, and their and their ability to acquire knowledge and skills, and and to adapt and to respond and to change, and to work well with people, as a means of saying, hey, in a changing world, if they have those competencies, even if they're lacking some of the specific areas of expertise, I might be able to train them in that, that expertise because they've proven. They're a fast learner. They're a good learner. And that can help you fill in gaps and and you know and go with people that that uh you feel that you can trust. And so, but I, I'm gonna expand the trust to say it's not we don't want to just trust the character, we also need to trust the competence. So both character and competence are vital to sustain the trust.
0: Yeah, you bring up such a good point there, and it's not a, a one-sided coin. Uh, a saying you said a few minutes ago, none of us are competent at everything. And it makes me think of those times, uh, even even for myself, when I've been asked to take on a role that's going to stretch me. And there, those moments of, of self-doubt will kick in, right? Like, am I, am I capable of this? Can I take on this role? I know you've been thrown in roles like that. So how do you handle that? When you have someone ask you to take on a bigger role, you know it's going to stretch what you're capable of, and that self-doubt can kick in. How have you handled that?
1: Yes, this has happened to me a few different times. It's part of you know, consistent with uh, um, your podcast, Sean, what got you there? I've been put in places. I mean, it happened to me when I was seven years old. That was a minor thing, right? But as a seven-year-old, that's a big job. Take care of the yard, green and clean. And, and I wasn't quite ready for it, but my father worked with me to help me develop myself. I've had other opportunities too, where I've got put into situations where I felt overwhelmed. Like, how can I do this? And so I come back to saying, if I can focus first on me, my credibility, and I look in the mirror. I look in the mirror first. I start with myself, and and um, you know, do I trust myself? Do I give to my team a leader who they can trust? Is it smart to trust me? And so there, I'm focusing on both my character and my competence, and I'm trying to build myself, develop myself build that sense of self-trust, because think about it, Sean, if I don't trust myself, how am I going to build trust with others? And how, how are others going to trust me? I've got to start with that self-trust. And so I, I, I look in the mirror and I focus on my integrity and, you know, and making sure I'm clear about what I value so that I can be true to my values. And, you know, honesty is where your, your, where your words match reality. Integrity is when your reality matches you your words you are who you say you are. so I'm trying to say here's what I stand for here's what I'm about. these are my values this is what matters to me now I live true to that. that's integrity that gives me clarity and, and power. that's you know Admiral McRaven, make your bet that's that's the first step. The second is I look at my intent. what's my motive? Am I seeking mutual benefit win win? Do I care about others and that they win? So yes, I want to win, but I want everybody I'm working with to win. Mutual benefit is the only sustainable approach in an interdependent reality. And so I'm trying to just check my motive and my agenda. Win, win. And my motive is I care. I care about my people. So when I start with that in- integrity and that intent, integrity of, of being true to who I am and my values and you know, honest, truthful, and intent is I care about people and I'm seeking mutual benefit. That gives me a sense of clarity and power. But then I then I focus on my competence. And, and the competence is kind of two halves, my capabilities and my results. So my capabilities are my talents and my skills and my expertise and my knowledge and my style. And the key here is that I'm always learning, growing, improving, staying relevant. So I'm constantly saying, okay, I've been thrust into a new role and I have to develop some new skills. I'm going to need to bring in some people that have those skills to complement me for my shortcomings, my weaknesses. I love what Peter Drucker said. He said, learn to um, feed strengths and starve weaknesses. And the best way to do that, I know as a leader, is to surround yourself with a complimentary team where your strength complements others' weaknesses and and your weaknesses are complemented by other strengths, so that you 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 build a team that can compensate. And then you try to get you, know, you try to grow in areas of weakness where it matters to grow. And you know, again, we can't be perfect at everything, but we try to build enough capability in the areas that matter for the kind of leadership we're providing. And so that's kind of the third and the fourth dimension is then my results, my track record, because that gives people confidence. When they see that I deliver, I perform, I come through. If I did it in one area, then it gives them confidence I can do it in another, and in another, and so forth. So I've given you four areas of what I call, I call these the four cores of credibility. And I use a metaphor of a tree, if you, if our listeners will envision of, of a, a tree. You have the roots of the tree, the trunk of the tree, the branches, and the fruits. Those four cores of credibility, um, are, you know, Illustrate are illustrated through the tree. Integrity is the roots of the tree. Intent is the trunk, and integrity and intent flow from our character, and we try to build that. That gives us self confidence. Capabilities is the branches of the tree, and the the fruit of the tree is results, our track record of performance, and and um and when I have strong capabilities and I'm and I'm in growing capabilities and a track record of results. I feel a sense of self-confidence again. And that helps me trust myself and therefore trust others. So I always look in the mirror. I start with myself. I focus on my credibility and what I can do about growing, increasing, enhancing that credibility. And with that, then I feel that sense that Admiral McRaven talked about, I've made my bed. And I feel a sense of confidence going forward. I don't have to be perfect. I surround myself by a good team, but I can move forward with confidence and see great things happen. And I, and I find the best leaders do this. They lead from the inside out. And they look in the mirror. They start with themselves.
0: Well, this question started around being being thrust into a role that's going to stretch you. And, and you hit on results there. And I love learning from people with hands-on experience. So I'm thinking about when you were thrust in the role of CEO of Covey Leadership Center, and during that time, what I'm so impressed by is your ability to grow profits 12-fold to over $110 million. So I'm wondering, when you first take that role on, what are some of the other things? Maybe not necessarily these huge pillars, but are there any little things you might have changed or implemented that you thought had profound impacts?
1: Yes. Um, we Here's our situation when I took over. We'd been growing, so we had a good value proposition. But we were not very profitable. You no know, very, very low margins. We had good growth, high growth. We had no outside capital. We had a lot of debt. Now do the math on that.
0: It's not I, looking good.
1: <laughs> that's right. high growth, both with low margins, no outside capital, a lot of debt. Our debt to liabilities, our, our tangible debt, the total liabilities ratio was 223 to 1. We were completely upside down. And the bank at the time was ready to pull our line of credit. And so what came to me was, you know, um, we needed to quickly um, change our business model and and figure out how to make money and what we were doing. We still wanted to, you know, we wanted to make sure that our value proposition for our customer stayed high. We didn't want to change that. That's why we were growing, because customers loved the value we were creating for them we had not yet figured out how to make money at it in a sustainable way. And we were so mission driven, Sean, you know, we're all about doing good and impacting people in society. It was very easy to find ourselves getting involved in all kinds of opportunities everywhere, but many of them really were hobbies. We could never really make money at it. We couldn't get good at it. We couldn't sustain it, but we were involved in all these hobbies out there that was part of our mission, but we couldn't, but there was no margin to it. So we developed a mantra, no margin, no mission. And, and we said, look, if we can't make money at this, if it's not sustainable, we can't do it because we won't be able to have a mission if we can't stay viable as a business. Besides, people are looking to us as a business of saying, are you a model of what you're teaching, effectiveness, and, and, and building trust and a high trust team and culture and getting results. So we had to model it. And we had to um, really focusing on our business model. So we got we, we got out of a lot of hobbies. And we learned this by doing activity-based costing on our business and learned where we were making money, where we were not. And we had to make some hard decisions and say, you know what, we're going to get out of this business and that business. And we're going to focus more on these other businesses where we're more profitable and where we can have a greater impact and get more margin in order to fund our mission. And And it was hard because people had grown attached to a lot of these you know mission driven activities that were hobbies where we couldn't make money but what happened is we began to improve and our margins started to go up and our profitability started to go up we began to pay the debt off and our cash flow improved we went back to the bank the bank liked what they saw they ended up increasing our line of credit cuz now, now they trusted us cuz we're getting results and and we transformed our business and became far more profitable and with that now we had far greater clout and influence and a platform, really, to impact people, to have a greater mission, to do more, to impact people all over the world. And so we had kind of dichotomized it. You know, are we, are, are we all about our mission or we are we just a business trying to make money? And I said, that's a false dichotomy. There's a third alternative. We are a mission-driven business. We are a business. We have to operate as a business. We have to make money in order to sustain our mission but we're not an ordinary business that's just trying to make money. We're trying to make a difference. We're trying to contribute to the world. And that inspired people. And this common, this third alternative of a mission-driven business helped us transform our business. But we had to do a lot of hard things, including getting out of hobbies, focus on our business model, finding a business model that could work and be sustainable while still not you know, losing any value creation for our customers. And that was a process. But I'll tell you what, we did it as a team and we build a high trust culture as a team. We built trust with our suppliers. We built trust with our customers. And as I, t- as I talk about in the, my book, The Speed of Trust, when you build trust with all these stakeholders, you move faster. There's less cost. The profits go up dramatically. They multiplied because high trust is a dividend, just like low trust is a tax. And your ability to collaborate and to innovate and to create and to engage your people and to inspire them goes up when there's trust. And with customers, you build trust with customers, they stay with you longer. They give you the benefit of the doubt. They refer business to you. And referral business is the speed of trust in action because it's your customer telling your prospect that they should trust you. And there's a transference of trust from your customer to your prospect. And your prospect becomes a new customer faster and at less cost. And it's a powerful, virtuous, upward cycle where trust and confidence, create more trust and confidence with all your stakeholders. And that's what we experienced and what happened. And it changed everything for our company. But it took, again, as a company, we kind of had to look in the mirror as a company and say, you know, where are we at? What's working? What's not? And and then what business is our business? And how can we do it better and still keep our mission intact? And, we, and that was a process. It wasn't easy, but we got there and it made a profound difference.
0: Yeah. Trust is one of those things that we all know it's important, but what I love is that you've really codified the, the number of ways and the value it truly does add. And one of those value adds you were talking about is building a strong culture. All right, so I'd love to get your take as you start to scale up. Hiring is one of the more important things. What, what are you looking for uh, when someone walks in that door during an interview? and you're assessing them.
1: Yes. Again, I'm trying to hire for both character and competence. And I'm looking at, you know, do they get along well with people? Can they work well with people? And and I try to do that with behavioral interviewing of tell me about situations you've been in where you had a challenge and opportunity, where you had to work with others to make things happen. How did it go? And, I, and I'm trying to see to what extent that they are talking we, not just I, and giving credit to others and collaborating and creating versus just, you know, just heroic, all about me. Because if, if I can get people that can work well with others, that's part of building a great team, a great culture that's collaborative. Then I'm also looking for, you know, their resourcefulness of their initiative, their proactivity, if you will, even more than precise technical expertise in every situation as long as they're resourceful and and have initiative and take it and learn and grow and improve and get better. So I'm looking for kind of those things that, that demonstrates to me, their character, their competence. Again, I can't cover everything. So I'm trying to say, can they help us build a team and a culture here? Can they learn? Can they be a catalyst to help us do this? And do they add to what we're trying to do? And, and, um, and, but then, but the key is, so you're right. Hiring is a key. But I'll give you another key to building a high trust culture is we need modeling from leaders. We need people that are saying, you know, here's what we're trying to do. Here's why they're giving the why behind the, what they're declaring their intent. Sometimes people give the, what they often don't give the, why, give the, why. So declare your intent. Here's what we're trying to do. Here's how we're going to do it. You know, we're going to talk straight. And you, you just declare it. You say what you're going to do. So we're going to tell the truth. And then you model it. And you tell the truth. And you call things what they are versus, you know, spinning or sugarcoating or, you know, kind of uh, twisting, manipulating, posturing. And then you're transparent. You're open. You model that versus having hidden agendas. And, you know, and you, you practice accountability. You take responsibility versus finger pointing and blaming and, and so you're kind of saying here's who we are here's what we stand for these are the kind of behaviors we're seeking in our culture and we then seek to the lead out and model that so when when you're modeling at the top or in the middle wherever you are in the organization you know you don't have to wait on the boss you can you can be the catalyst to, to you know to do that it well you know it takes two to have trust but it only takes one to start you can be the one and when you model it wherever you're at and then when you hire accordingly to both character and competence and both, you know, can kind of play well with others and they can learn and get better. Then I'm beginning to build a culture. And then I do one more thing. If I try to do my best to align my systems and structures around a high trust culture. So if we tell people we value collaboration, but our reward system just reward independence and you know competition, then that's kind of misaligned. And so I want to then make sure my award systems, if I say I value collaboration and interdependence and teamwork, then I want to align my systems and structures to say, and we reward that too. And that takes some time to get there. But a combination of modeling with good hiring for fit, as well as for opportunity, and then aligning systems and structures enable you to build a high-trust culture. When you have a high-trust culture, you can move fast. You can be agile and adaptive, you can respond, you can innovate. Um, The data is overwhelming that high trust cultures innovate at 11 times the pace of low trust cultures. Because people are far more able to take a risk, make a mistake, learn, get better, and improve. And when there's low trust, you just won't do that. You won't take that risk. And they innovate better. They collaborate better. They're far more engaged when there's high trust. You inspire your people. You retain them. And, and you also perform better. The data shows that there's about a three times multi- performance multiplier to high trust. Greater profitability, greater value of your enterprise, your business, when there's high trust. So you get all these high trust dividends. You know, It's not to like about that? It's just not easy to do. It's easy to say, but it's hard to do. It's simple, but not easy. So we got to focus on building that trust from the inside out, modeling it for you as a leader uh, through your behavior. And then and then uh, building it through your systems and structures and through your hiring. So those are some of the things that the leaders can do that you know in any role as an entrepreneur or even as an entrepreneur within a larger company to build high trust within your team, your unit, your you know your circle of influence.
0: Yeah, a word that has come up maybe more than any in this conversation is learning and it's something I'm doing a great deal of right now during this conversation. So I'd love to know how you assess learning, and and when you're taking on a new topic, a new strategy, are there any things that you do uh, just to help you with your knowledge acquisition?
1: Yeah, well, I start from the premise of what if the half life of my knowledge were just a year? <laughs> it would cause me to constantly be learning and recreating myself, and the whole idea that. I don't want to just have 10 20 30 years of experience where I've just really where it's really one year of experience I'm repeating 10 20 30 times. I'm constantly wanting to say how can I learn? How can I get better? How can I stay relevant? And the, so to me that's the key. The key to learning is tied to relevance. Staying relevant with your customers, staying relevant with your market, staying relevant with your own people. And and that's what I'm saying is, you know, um, that this idea of extending trust is relevant as a leadership style for our day. We got multiple generations. You know, five generations, you know certainly four um, from, the, from you know the traditionalists to the baby boomers to uh, Gen X to millennials to Gen Z. And people are looking at different things. and so we gotta, we got to make sure we have a style of leadership that's relevant for our times. We've got to learn and improve and get better. And sometimes learning to your to your question requires unlearning hmm. and almost a unfreezing kind of our old approaches and challenging and saying, is there a better way to do things? Is there a better way to operate that will make me more relevant for our times? I love the expression by the historian Arnold Toynbee. He said, Nothing fails like success. And he said, You can describe all history almost with that phrase nothing felt like success and the whole idea sean was this that in, in society throughout history you'll see societies have a challenge come to them and they learn to develop a very successful response to that challenge so the challenge comes they have learned and built a successful response to that challenge and that equals success but then what happens is the nature of the challenge changes And that once successful response that had worked with the prior challenge doesn't work very well with the new challenge. Hence the idea nothing fails like success. So we need a new response to the new challenge. We've got to learn and maybe unlearn what we've done in the past that made us so good. And we've got to stay relevant with the new challenges. And that's what's happening. We now have multiple generations at work in a way we haven't had before. We have change and disruption hitting us in a way we haven't before. Not just this pandemic, but even outside of that, when we get through this, just the pace of change, the amount of change, the type of change, the disruption that's hitting every industry. We have a need for engagement, a need for innovation, a need for collaboration in new and different ways, greater than ever before. We have a need to inspire people like never before. So to operate kind of how we've done things in the past, may not be near as relevant today. Nothing fails like success. We need a new way of leading and of operating that is relevant for our times. So to operate with a style of leadership that you might call command and control, that might've worked in the past, is like playing tennis with a golf club. You know, the the tool you're using, the style of leadership you're employing is not relevant for our world today, we need a new style of leadership. I call it trust and inspire that's relevant for our times. It's everything we've been talking about to extend trust to people, to inspire them, and to, and it, because that, that brings out the best in them and enables collaboration and innovation and agility so we can adapt and respond to the change, to the disruption. And we've got to constantly be improving and getting better and learning. You're exactly right to stay relevant. And so it is an ongoing process. I love um, the phrase, the expression by General Shinseki, former Chief of Staff of the Army. He said, if you don't like change, you're gonna like irrelevance even less. <laughs> you know, and so the change is hitting us. We gotta stay relevant. And the key to relevance is to stay learning, improving and getting better, including in our style of leadership, the way that we lead people, interact, and to stay relevant for our new world. For, you know, for the new challenge in front of us, which is taking place today. So that you're exactly right. It is ongoing learning and, and improving. But I think that if you can tie the learning to the idea of relevance, relevance with your people, relevance with your customers, and in the marketplace, that will then have you know a, a connecting point to our learning. So we're not learning just for the sake of learning. We're learning in order to stay relevant with all our stakeholders.
0: Yeah, you bring up such a great point. It, it reminds me of creative destruction. And if you're not doing that, if you're not reinventing your business model, uh, it's going to go out of date. It won't be relevant, like you've said. You you continue to bring up people throughout history, great military strategists. So I have to assume you're a very big reader. I, I love reading, so I'm always intrigued by what books people continually go back to over the years. Are Are there any books you've continued to pick up?
1: Um. You know what? I I love both uh literature um because that can take you to places that you that you know you can sometimes only imagine it enables us to experience life in different ways from classics like uh Les Miserables <laughs> to you know which which to me inspires me and it shows you again the power of of uh, being trusted, John Beljean being trusted by Someone when his he felt his life was basically over, and it was that bishop that when he stole the candlesticks. For those that are familiar with the story, and someone believed in him, trusted him. To to uh, more you know books about you know business books, the traditional business books. Love Jim Collins, Good to Great. I find it's based upon principles. I tend to gravitate towards books that are based upon principles versus kind of kind of techniques or practices, because those kind of flow in and out. But I look for um, you know, important principles. You know, in the field of marketing, um, so much out there. The whole paradigm shifted with Seth Godin and his permission marketing. And you know, that's what 15, 20 years old, but it's such a breakthrough. It remains a classic. Um, Frederick Reichheld book um, on the loyalty effect, all about creating value for customers. I come back to that again. It's it, it's 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 kind of an old one. I um you know I know this is self-serving because it, it runs in the family. But my father's work on the Seven Habits of Highly Effective People is foundational for both personal effectiveness and for personal leadership development for any leader. Because again, it's based upon principles and it focuses from the inside out. But I think you can go through if you have a framework to which to look at things, then you can go through you know historical books, and I like you. I also do um, uh, like, like history and and, um, and 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 like to read. Uh, um, you know, I like to stay current with what's going on, but boy, there's so much going on. It's hard to stay current. So I try to say, you know, uh, change is the only constant. But actually, there's another constant in addition to, to change, and that is principles. And principles ground us. And during a time of great change and transition, people long for principles. And so that's what I try to do with speed of trust is teach basic foundational principles, you know, that trustworthiness underlies trust. And it's about credibility. It's about behavior and fairness and honesty and integrity and creating value. And these are principles that transcend time and cultures and coming back to things like that, help us through it, you know, to deal with the challenges that life throws us. And so, yes, I think we can get a lot from studying history. But what I like to come back to is how um, there's all this change going on around us, and we have to be responsive. We've got to stay relevant. But the need to constantly come back to principles in the midst of change gives us a sense of a, an anchor during a time of uncertainty. And that's why, to me, some of the, the, the classics are, are so important. And I, come, I tend to draw, be drawn back to that.
0: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Sticking with the principles that will withstand the test of time is essential throughout all elements of life, not only times like this. Well, Stephen Covey, this has been truly fascinating, a complete joy for me. Where else do you want the listeners staying connected with you, picking up your books, anywhere we can direct them?
1: Yeah, I'd love if the listeners, if you're interested in this, uh, go to uh, speedoftrust.com. speedoftrust.com. Um, because you'll find some videos there, some, some things for, for free. You can look. You can apply. We'll talk about this idea of how trust is really the one thing that changes everything. It impacts everything we're trying to do. And at one level, we all know that. But as we've been discussing, at another level, it is an exception, a performance multiplier and an accelerator and an energizer for everything that we're trying to do that it makes the second point really important, and that, and that is that trust is learnable. And in the Speed of Trust book, I kind of outline how you build trust on purpose as a leader, as a team, as an organization, and turn this trust into your greatest strength, into your currency. Trust is the ultimate currency in our world today. So uh, speedoftrust.com is a great place to get access to some of these resources. Also, you can follow me on uh, Twitter, at Covey, And I'd love to engage with our listeners and hopefully add value. With what I feel is my life's work and my calling is to try to help increase trust in our world as a means of inspiring people and organizations everywhere.
0: Well, there was a lot of value given in this conversation. So thanks again for joining us on what got you there.
1: You're you're welcome, Sean. And thank you for what you're doing to uh, really increase trust in the world by talking to great leaders and practitioners and helping our listeners see, be inspired by their stories so they can also see that same possibility in themselves. That's what you do. So you are a catalyst to building trust in this world. And I and I appreciate being a co-catalyst with you to help bring about a renaissance of trust. Thanks so much, Sean.
0: You guys made it to the end of another episode of What Got You There. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I really do appreciate you taking the time to listen all the way through.